Good morning, friends. It's good to be with you and have this opportunity to open up God's word together. I'm going to pray for us again briefly, and then we will dive in. Let's pray. Lord, every word of yours in Scripture is like gold refined seven times in a fire. It is pure and perfect and true. There are passages, Lord, that are easier for us to embrace and rejoice in and desire to hear about, and there are passages that are harder, things that we need to work hard to understand. And so far as this text today is harder, I pray that you would grant us understanding and that you would also encourage us with the glorious and profound truths that are contained within it. We pray this for your glory and for our good. Amen. Well, I want to go ahead and ask you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 18 to 25 today. If you're using the Bible that we provided, you'll find the passage, I think, on page 1015. If it's not 1015, it's, it's right around there. Uh, I want to encourage you to open to the passage so that you can follow along when I read it in a moment. And I want to also encourage you to keep your Bible open throughout our time because we'll be looking often at the passage in our time together. Uh, it's been a bit since we were last in 1 Peter, so I want to take a moment to set the context for us and for the passage that we're going to be looking at. You might remember that in chapter 1 of 1 Peter, Peter focused his attention on the glorious salvation that God had accomplished for his people. He chose us, he sanctified us, he cleansed us, he caused us to be born again, gave us a living hope, and guaranteed us a future inheritance. In short, God made us his very own people. Then in chapter 2, Peter shifts his focus to how God's people are to live in response to all that God has done for us. I want you to go ahead and look at chapter 2, verse 12, for a pretty nice summary. Peter writes, in response to all that God has done, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Peter calls Christians to doing good deeds in light of all that God has done for us and says God will use these good deeds to bring other people to faith in Jesus. And then, right after verse 12, he immediately begins describing an attitude and a way of living that should permeate our lives as Christians. And that attitude and way of living is that Christians are to be subject or live in submission to the different authorities God has placed in our lives. Last time we were in 1 Peter, we considered the call to be subject to the governing authorities. And if you're interested in hearing more about that, you can find that sermon on our website. And next time we get together in 1 Peter, we'll look at the principle of submission within marriage. But this week, we're going to look at the call for slaves to be subject to their masters. And how this passage provides instruction for us today. So let me go ahead and read the passage for us now. This is God's word. 
Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. If you're taking notes, the main lesson for you, if you follow Jesus, is that you are to be subject at times even to unjust authorities because you've been called to follow in Jesus' footsteps. If you follow Jesus, you're to be subject at times even to unjust authorities because you've been called to follow in Jesus' footsteps. We're gonna unpack that main point in two points. You're to be subject at times even to unjust authorities. And point two, because you're called to follow in Jesus' footsteps. But before we dive into those two points, you may have noticed that Peter is writing to servants, or another way to translate that word is slaves. He's writing about slaves and their relationship with their masters. Uh, living as we do in, the 20, in 21st century America, that word may jump off the page and bring to mind the horrors of the American race-based chattel slavery system. So when we come to a passage like this in Scripture, we need to make sure that we're understanding things correctly. And we want to be asking questions of the text to see if we can understand, ensure that we can understand things correctly. I think two questions that we want to ask is, is what happened in America comparable to what was happening in Rome in the first century when Peter was living? And does this mean that Peter is endorsing the institution of slavery? I think, to be sure, there are some inescapable similarities between slavery in first century Rome and the American system of slavery. I'll point out two similarities. First, in both settings, individuals were treated as property, right? Slaves were owned by their masters, and it was understood and accepted without question that the master had total rights over the slave. A second similarity that we have to acknowledge is that in both systems of slavery, terrible abuses occurred, terrible things happened. We'll even see in our passage that some of the slaves to whom Peter was writing are suffering terrible sorrows under cruel masters. So there are some similarities. 
Those are two that I want to point out. But we need to recognize that there are also profound differences between the two systems of slavery. By and large, slavery in the Roman world wasn't the result of man-stealing in the same way that it was in America, and which is expressly forbid by God in Scripture. In the Roman world, vast numbers of people chose to become slaves in order to get a better standing in society, which we'll talk more about in a minute. A second, slavery in the Roman Empire wasn't based on race or ethnicity as it was in America. In that sense, slaves look just like everyone else, and in more ways than one. Not only was the ethnic makeup of slaves diverse, but they also dressed like everyone else. In fact, they were so indistinguishable from the rest of society that at one time, legislation was proposed to force slaves to wear particular clothing so that they could be distinguished from the broader population, which points to a third difference. And that's that slaves didn't necessarily inhabit the lowest sphere of society. That is not to say that they were in the upper sphere of society, but slaves on the whole in the Roman Empire were better off than poor free people in Rome. Whereas poor freemen slept on the streets and had little in the way of food and clothing, slaves lived in the home with a family, were given food, clothing, and often a small stipend for their labors. They were even treated as part of the family on, uh, uh, on in, in certain households, which is why Peter addresses them in what are regularly known as household instructions. And right after he talks to slaves, he's going to talk to husbands and wives, which points to another difference. And that's that slaves often worked in very specialized fields. At times, they worked alongside their masters in various trades or as legal clerks or as accountants, as managers of estates or vineyards, on ships, and so on. And they would often go on to work in those fields when they moved on from being slaves. And often the master would bankroll them to get them started, which points to another difference, and that's that slavery was rarely permanent. Many chose slavery because it was the quickest path to become a citizen of Rome and afforded them educational benefits which could be put to use later in life. The average length of service for a slave in Rome was roughly seven years. In all of these ways and others, we see clear differences between Roman slavery and American slavery. But perhaps the clearest difference and the one that helps us better understand why Peter speaks as matter-of-factly as he does about slaves obeying their masters is because slavery was the way the entire world operated. Every nation on earth at this time, and this is not to excuse it, this is just simply to acknowledge a fact. It is the way the entire world operated. Every nation on earth at this time, every empire from Egypt to Babylon to Assyria to Persia to Greece to Rome and beyond, the entire ancient world operated on a system of slavery. Historians believe that nearly half of the population of the Roman Empire were slaves. There was no such thing as a free society as we understand it today. Anywhere on earth, slavery is how the entire ancient world worked, which helps us better understand why Peter speaks as plainly as he does here. He wasn't trying to take the world economic system head on. What we also have to see is that while the New Testament authors don't clearly denounce or attempt to overthrow the institution of slavery, they do preach a message that would eventually undermine that entire system and bring about its end. 
the gospel message that they preached in that sense is like a Trojan horse to the institution of slavery. As soon as a city built by slavery opens a door to the gospel and to genuine faith in Christ, it has sealed its own fate. Slavery cannot last long when and where the people of a nation come to believe that God has created all mankind equally in his image and has lavishly poured out his grace on us to free us from our own spiritual slavery. And the proof of that is in the fact that slavery is no longer the world economic system that it was in the ancient world. Yes, slavery does exist as an institution in parts of the world, but Christianity and the gospel message are the reason that the institution of slavery is no longer the world system that it was. And where Christianity and slavery have coexisted, they have coexisted not because of Christianity, but in spite of it and based on terrible and egregious abuses of scripture that Christians have even participated in and which we, f- we should be willing to reject and repent of and just be totally opposed to. If you have questions about the topic of slavery in the Bible or if you want recommendations on resources, let me know. I'd be happy to talk with you about it. But even though first century Roman slavery no longer exists, at least not here in America, doesn't mean we have nothing to learn from these verses. Instead, we find principles laid down in this passage that should transform how you and I respond to unjust authorities in our world. So I wanna go ahead and transition to my first point, which is that you and I are to be subject at times even to unjust authorities. Look at me at verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. The heart posture and outward behavior that God is calling these Christian slaves to is one of being subject to their masters. Another common translation, as I said of that verb, is to submit to their masters. And being subject to their masters included both obedience on one hand and honor on the other, right? It is not only an action obeying, but a posture of the heart that manifests itself in respectful obedience. And being subject to their masters included both obedience and honor. Notice even how Peter brings that to the surface in the first half of verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. Don't just obey your masters, but show honor to them. Respect them as you submit to them. And as if that command wasn't already hard enough for us to envision living out, Peter wants the slaves in his audience to know this applies to all of them regardless of what their master was like. Look at the second half of verse 18. Not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. He's saying to them, God is not calling you to be subject only to those masters who deserve it, but also to those who don't deserve it. Having a harsh master doesn't exempt you from having to obey this command. You see, the, the temptation that they faced was to be subject only, when those, only to those masters who deserved it in their eyes, to submit only when their master treated them with respect or 
kindness or was gentle with them. But you can, you can hear the words of Jesus echoing in the background of Peter's instruction and which are reverberating here to us today. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. The radical rebirth these slaves had experienced through faith in Jesus Christ necessarily led to radical changes to how they responded to being mistreated by others. Whereas these slaves might once have responded to harsh treatment with all sorts of different sinful attitudes and actions, they were now to show honor and respect even to those who were their enemies. We're gonna talk a lot about that, a lot about why in the second point, but we have to sit with this command and let the spirit speak to us through it. Servants were to be subject even to harsh, unjust, and cruel masters with all respect. Unjust authorities who, in this case, use their authority at times to physically harm their slaves or worse. Look at verse 19. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Then again, at the end of verse 20. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Some of these slaves would at times suffer physical beatings or worse, and still the call for them was to be subject with all respect. Now, I want to stop right here and say again, Peter is not condoning, endorsing, or supporting slavery. He would have agreed with Paul that had they had the opportunity to become free, they they should by all means do it. But since becoming free prior to the completion of terms set by one's master was a rarer experience, Peter needed to give simple, direct, clear pastoral instruction to slaves who had no recourse to change their circumstances. They didn't have a slave union where they could protest injustice. They didn't have an HR department they could file complaints with. They couldn't quit. They could appeal to their master and plead for better treatment, and that was it. And so they needed to know how they should respond to such unjust treatment in their circumstances. And Peter's telling them, be subject. Obey them. Honor them. Christians are to be subject at times even to unjust authorities. Now, before we talk about what this text means for us today, we have to talk first about what it doesn't mean for us. This passage isn't teaching us that we should obey authorities in our lives 
who are instructing us to sin. Peter wasn't telling these slaves to obey their masters if they were being instructed to sin. He's been very clear that their ultimate allegiance is to God throughout his letter, and they're to fear God alone. I I think it's even clear in verse 20, if you look there, that some of these slaves are being punished for doing good, meaning their obedience to God rather than to their master is what was resulting in their punishment. Neither is this passage teaching us that we have to endure abusive or unjust treatment in any and every situation we might find ourselves in. If you're in a dating relationship or in a marriage in which you're experiencing physical, verbal, sexual, or emotional abuse, this passage is not teaching you that you need to silently endure it and be subject to it. If you're a child and your parent is abusing you, this passage is not teaching you that you need to silently endure it. If you're an employee and you're experiencing various forms of abuse or harassment in your workplace, Peter is not telling you that you need to be subject to it and not speak up. If you're a student and your professors or teachers are treating you unjustly, Peter is not telling you to silently endure it, buck up, and just don't speak about it. If you're experiencing unjust treatment or abuse in the home, the workplace, or at school, or anywhere else for that matter, you should speak up. We have to recognize again Peter is talking to a group of people who have no recourse for help. They can't speak up. And if they do, nobody's going to listen to them anyway. And if they run away and are caught, they're going to be killed. There is nobody who is coming to their aid. And that is not you and me. That is not our situation today. If you're experiencing unjust treatment at work, you can go to HR. You can leave your job and find another if circumstances allow you to. If you're experiencing abuse or injustice in the home, you don't have to suffer in silence. Please tell others. Call the authorities. Come and talk to one of the elders or another member of the church. Allow people in. Speak up so that we can help. Christians should be on the, on the side of those who are being oppressed. We should advocate for those who are suffering abuse. If you're experiencing unjust treatment in school, find a safe member of the administration to appeal to. You're not disobeying God by speaking up if you're experiencing injustice in these various domains. Now, with all of that said, there's still a crucial principle here for us to apply in our lives. And the most direct application for us from this text is going to be in our capacity as employees or as students for those in college, high school, or uh, below. And the principle here for us is that we, too, are called to live lives of respectful submission and patient endurance in the face of mistreatment. In our lives as employees or for those who are here as students, we're under authority. We're under the authority of our bosses and our teachers or our professors. And there are times when our bosses, our teachers, and our professors are good and gentle. And there may be times when they aren't. 
And the temptation for you and I is to respond to their unkindness, uh, to their unfair treatment, their harshness, with all sorts of different sinful attitudes and actions, right? We, we might put on a happy face and do our work all the while we're cursing them in our hearts, right? Not being subject to them with all respect. Or we might begin putting in half-hearted performances at work or in school because we don't like how we're being treated. Or we might start joining in break room conversations about how terrible the boss is or how unrealistic his or her expectations are. Or if you're a student, you might willingly join in with your classmates in the hallways and talk about how much you can't stand this teacher or that because of their unfair expectations. But whenever we do those things or other things like them in order to get back at those in authority over us, we're not honoring the Lord. We're not obeying the call to be subject even to the unjust, harsh, or unfair authorities in our lives. One pastor said, a really bad boss is a gift to the Christian. And we could add a really bad teacher or professor Professor is a gift as well. They're a gift from God for your sanctification. I'm guessing many of you have prayed, God, make me more like Jesus Christ. And God has said, I'm gonna answer that prayer by giving you a difficult boss or teacher. God is saying, my son endured unjust treatment, persecution, and even death at the hands of cruel authorities. If you wanna be more like him, here's a difficult boss or teacher for you to patiently endure mistreatment from. And if you and I respond to being mistreated, slighted, overlooked at work in in ways that aren't illegal and that don't violate HR policy, if we respond by doing what everyone else in the workplace or school does when they're mistreated, then we're missing out on a massive opportunity to show off the power of Jesus, the goodness of the gospel, and the awesomeness of God to those who are around us. I remember before I was a Christian, I had a big problem with anger And back in the day, I used to work as a bartender in Richmond, Virginia. And the bar that I worked at had two floors. It was a restaurant plus a bar, and it had like a nightclub underneath. And there was the moneymaker bar, and then there was the bar where you didn't make all that much money because everyone went to this other bar. And I had been working at this restaurant and bar for a long time, and I'd really felt like I'd put in my dues and like, I need to be at the moneymaker bar. I was put at the, you know, the lower paying bar you know, often, and felt like I, I'd find, I've earned, my, I've earned my, my opportunity to, to make more money here. And on one particular Friday night, I was having a bad day, and my boss uh, just said, hey, you're going to be on the upstairs bar, and I lost it. I started yelling at her in the middle of the restaurant. It's a, a, an experience that is still seared on my memory and that I am ashamed of, though I know I've been forgiven of because it was such a horrible display of disrespect and allowing myself to be controlled by bitterness and anger. And you're probably all sitting here like, man, that's terrible, right? Like, wow, thanks for sharing that, John. But like, whoa, glad I've never done anything like that. But but I just wanna ask you, how many of you haven't actually done that in your heart? When you're being overlooked, when you're being mistreated, 
when you're not getting the fair chance that you think you deserve, when they're being too strict on you, when their expectations are too great, and they're just asking you to work again. No, you need to be in the office. You have a harsh boss who's saying you have to be here, and you come in, and you do the work, but inside, you're yelling. You want to take it out on them. You want to let them know, I don't appreciate this, and I don't, I don't appreciate you. The call of God on us as Christians is be subject with all respect. Obey and honor. That's why verse 19 talks about being mindful of God. We patiently endure mistreatment, not because our boss or unfair professor or teacher deserves it, but because you and I believe in God. And you know that God reigns and that God will administer perfect justice to all. And so you and I can patiently endure mistreatment and even love those who wrong us. But we also have to recognize that not all mistreatment, quote unquote, at work or in school, is actually mistreatment. Your boss may be hard on you, and your teacher may be holding you to exacting standards because you are not doing a very good job at your job, right? Notice what Peter says in verse 20. He says, for what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? That's a, a rhetorical question. There is no credit for it. If you sin or are slacking off in your work or are showing up late or are mailing it in or not working hard and you get bad reviews or your boss is harder on you than he is on others, that, that's not persecution. That just means you need to work harder. Try to be more excellent at your work. As employees and students, we should strive to be the best in our workplace and classrooms. We should strive to be a joy to have in the office. We should want our professors to look forward to having us in class and then also know that some won't look forward to having us, that some won't treat us well precisely because we follow Jesus. And when that happens, if it rises to the level of violating school policy or workplace policy or labor laws, then we should speak up and seek fair treatment or consider finding a new job. But if it doesn't rise to that level, because let's be honest, not all of it does, and is more subtle mistreatment, and you're not in a position to leave your school or your job, the call for you and I is to patiently endure mistreatment while continuing to honor and obey those in authority over us. But now I want you to notice the powerful reason why we're, we're to respond this way, which brings me to point two. You're to be subject at times even to unjust authorities because you and I have been called to follow in Jesus' footsteps. I wonder if you notice that twice in verses 19 and 20, Peter says that patiently enduring mistreatment is a gracious thing. Verse 19, for this is a gracious thing. Then again at the end of verse 20, but if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Patiently enduring mistreatment because of our faith in God is a pleasing thing to God. It is a gracious and commendable thing in God's sight. But we have to ask the question, why? Is it, is it just because God says so? Is there, is there any particular reason why it's a gracious thing in God's sight? The resounding answer 
that God gives us to that question is that it's a gracious thing in his sight because in doing so, we are following in the footsteps of his son and our savior, Jesus Christ. I want you to look with me at verse 21 and follow the logic here. Peter writes, for to this you have been called. Stop right there. What is the this? The this is Peter's instruction to be subject even to unjust authorities, to patiently endure mistreatment. For you have been called to patiently endure mistreatment because Christ also suffered for you. The reason why you and I can patiently endure mistreatment from others and be subject at times even to unjust authorities is because that is how Jesus saved us. It's because that is how we were born again in the first place. He accomplished our salvation through suffering under unjust authorities. He, more than anyone ever in the world, endured sorrows while suffering unjustly by being unjustly opposed, unjustly arrested, unjustly condemned to death, and unjustly crucified on the cross by the Jewish and Roman authorities together. And in suffering for us, Peter says, he left us an example so that we would follow in his steps. What example did he leave us? Does that mean I need to go die on the cross for, for other people? No, that's not what he means. He showed us how to patiently endure mistreatment in a way that honors God and shows off the power of the gospel. Look at verses 22 and 23. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus gave us the playbook for responding to all the various forms of mistreatment we might experience in this life. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. We need to take that out of the realm of the abstract and experience life alongside Jesus and think about these experiences that he had. Think about the horrible things that were said to him as he was being tried by the Jewish authorities. Think about the vicious mocking and beatings he received at the hands of the Romans. Think of them slapping him, spitting on him, and flogging him. Think of the reviling, mocking, and cursing he experienced while hanging on the cross as his very own people, Psalm 22 says, wagged their tongues at him, pronounced curses over him, and taunted him by telling him to come down off the cross if he was the son of God. He never responded to sin with sin. This is the same Jesus who said, look, if I want to call a legion of angels to take them out right now, I can do it. And he restrained his power and endured unjust suffering for your sake and for mine. He never responded to sin with sin. He never lashed out in unrighteous anger. He never allowed rage or bitterness or contempt to control his heart and his actions. He never allowed malice or hatred to control him. And how did he do that? Because 
he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. We have to remember that Jesus was fully God and fully man. As the God-man, Jesus had to obey God. He had to trust God. He had to seek after God, even as he was enduring unjust suffering. And he endured that unjust suffering by obeying God's commands, not returning evil with evil, knowing that he didn't have to take vengeance into his own hands because he knew God will judge justly. I can endure this because the Father will judge justly. And friends, in all these ways and more, Jesus leaves us as an example that we can follow in. I don't know how many of you wore the WWJD bracelets back in the 90s. Show of hands. If you wore one back in the day, love it. I was not a Christian yet. I did not pay much attention to those bracelets, though I knew about them. But I know that after a while they fell out of style. Maybe perhaps they're making a comeback. I've heard rumors. While some people mock the bracelet, the question is a real one that Christians should ask daily, often, throughout the day. What would Jesus do in this situation or that? And if scripture plainly tells us what he would do, we should follow his example. And what he would do when suffering under unjust authorities is he would continue obeying God and entrusting himself to God. Friends, if you're in a situation in your workplace or at school or any other setting in which you're facing mistreatment that doesn't rise to the level of requiring legal intervention and doesn't rise to the level of needing to leave your job or your school, the call for you is to not respond to mistreatment with mistreatment. Listen, pull back from job, school, in any area of life. Christians are not to respond to reviling with reviling. It goes against our Lord and Savior and the very example he laid down for us in Scripture. We do not respond to harshness with harshness or unkindness with unkindness, but instead we love and even pray for our enemies and entrust ourselves to God. We, we leave vengeance and justice and all of that in God's hands. And think about how Jesus did both these things even to the very end, as he was hanging on the cross, he prayed two things among others. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Even as he's being pierced, forgive them. I love them, even though I'm suffering unjustly under them. And into your hands I commit my spirit. Entrusting himself to God, even to the very end, even at death itself. He died trusting God and obeying God, and in all of this, he's leaving us an example. Friends, how are you doing responding to being treated unjustly or unfairly or wrongly being slighted, things like that? Let's dial it back from being treated unjustly. How are you doing responding to being mistreated? Let's dial it back again. How are you doing responding to being treated unfairly. Let's dial it back again. How are you doing responding to being slighted or insulted or overlooked for a promotion or a job that you want or, or in any other area of life? When others treat you disrespectfully, unkindly, rudely, harshly, dismissively, condescendingly, 
Are you responding to them in like manner? Or are you patiently enduring mistreatment by seeking to follow Jesus' example in loving your enemies and entrusting yourself to God? Friends, this is no small matter. The unjust suffering of God's son who loved his enemies and prayed for them even to the end is the means through which God has made salvation from sin possible. And when God's people follow in the footsteps of Jesus and patiently endure mistreatment, we show off the power of the gospel. This is, why, this is what Jesus said. This is why Peter said, do good deeds, knowing that when you do good deeds, those who revile you, some of them will be won to faith in Jesus Christ. Because what is the way of the world? The way of the world is to fight back fire with fire. You're mean to me, I'm gonna be mean to you. You're unkind to me, I'm gonna be unkind to you. You make a political ad that's bad about my campaign, I'm gonna make a political ad that's bad about your campaign. But, but when Christians don't fight fire with fire, when we respond to fire with love, when we respond to meanness with kindness, there is a new principle and power at work that some people in the world are gonna see and be like, I want that. I don't like the meanness and hatred I have. I wanna know what you know. I wanna know the God that you serve. This is no small thing for us to be subject even at times to unjust authorities. Now I recognize how hard it is to love your enemies and pray for them, how hard it is to patiently endure mistreatment at the hands of others, and I assume that some of you are thinking that following Jesus' example here is simply too tall of a task. But I want you to see that the gospel gives us the power we need to follow Jesus when suffering unjustly. What do I mean by that? Look at verses 24 and 25. Peter outlines the basic facts of the gospel and in doing so shows us that the gospel gives us the power to follow Jesus' example. Verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body tree. I stop right here and I, wanna, I want you to see this is freedom from all condemnation. But Peter is calling back not only to Isaiah 53, he's going even further back to Deuteronomy 23, where we learn that those who are lawbreakers are accursed and they should be hung on a tree to die. What do you see going on here in 1 Peter? As he looks back on the crucifixion, he sees that Jesus Christ, the suffering servant, who was hung on a tree to die is bearing the curses of the law on behalf of all of us lawbreakers so that we would be freed from condemnation, freed from the vengeance that God is gonna bring against all who have broken his law. You have been freed from the power of sin. He was punished in our place. I, I just wanna draw out an image for you. There are two images of lawbreakers hanging on a tree in Scripture. One lawbreaker is Judas, hung on a tree to die because he denied the Lord, rejected him, and broke God's law. And Jesus, who never broke God's law, hanging on a tree, not for his sins, but for the sins of those who would trust him. All of humanity is headed for a tree. You will either die with Judas as a lawbreaker hanging on his tree, or you will die hidden in Jesus as one who has been freed from condemnation for breaking the law, hidden with him in Christ hanging on his tree. 
which tree do you want to hang on? Hang on the one with Christ. Because with Christ on his tree, you will die to sin and live to righteousness. That's what Peter goes on to say. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. The gospel is not just that you've been cleansed of sin and forgiven of sin. It's that God has given you a new heart, a new power, his very own spirit empowering you to die to sin. Sins like responding to evil with evil. And he calls you and gives you the power to live to righteousness, to choose, to restrain anger and bitterness, and, and to choose to continue entrusting yourself to God. But there's more good news here. By his wounds, you have been healed. Calling straight back to Isaiah 53. We have been healed and forgiven by God. Though we were broken down and destroyed by sin, the old is gone and the new has come. God has graciously healed all our wounds, restored us and forgiven us, and being forgiven by God but for all of our sins against him, we can now patiently endure mistreatment from others, forgive them for their behavior, and even love them in the midst of it. But there's even more. Verse 25, we have been reconciled to God. We have returned to God, our great shepherd. Friends, if God would respond to our sins, by sending his son to die in our place, to bear the punishment that we deserved so that we could be freed from the power of sin, forgiven and reconciled and restored in our relationship with God all through the unjust suffering of his son, then we too can respond to the mistreatment we experience with patient endurance. We're to be subject even at times to unjust authorities because we're called and empowered through the gospel to follow in Jesus's footsteps. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that your spirit would grant understanding, would grant wisdom and insight. Help us to take what we have learned today and to truly follow in the footsteps of Jesus Christ in whatever domain we're in, whatever roles and responsibilities we have. Help us to love our enemies to pray for those who persecute us. And we pray that as we do that, you would use our witness of your work in our lives to draw others to faith in Jesus Christ. And we pray this all in Jesus' name, amen.